I'm your co-host, Landon Phillips. And I'm your co-host, Michael Soto. And we are Gender Gender Curious. Curious. The ways human beings experience and understand gender is always changing and evolving because human beings are always changing and evolving. This podcast is all about exploring all things gender with curiosity, not judgment. This podcast is for everyone who, like us, is interested in learning more about all things gender. As author Alice Drager said, we now know that sex is complicated enough that we have to admit nature doesn't draw the line for us between male and female or between male and intersex and female and intersex. We actually draw that line on nature. And what a great quote for today because we're talking to the parent of an intersex child. So we're really going to get into the complexities of gender and sex in a way that we haven't yet. I'm excited. Me too. Let's get get curious. curious. are intersex people, Michael? That is a great question, Landon, and a really big question because there are a lot of people in this world that don't present either genetically or phenotypically or in other ways or chromosomally or uh, hormonally as just binary gender, as male or female. And that big category of people is intersex people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, intersex is a a general term that's used to describe a a pretty wide variety of people that are um, born with anatomy, reproductive, sexual, um, that doesn't seem to fit into our society's definitions of male or female. And there's a huge variety of people who fit into that category and a lot of different ways that that can look and a lot of different ways that that experience can be lived. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's, you know, this is definitely something that... um, in terms of experience, I think is has a lot less exposure um, and representation than uh, LGB and T people, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like a lot of folks don't know a lot about intersex people, the many many different uh, types of intersex people that they are, and much about their lived experience as human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think most people are aware. Everyone, especially everyone who gets all up in arms about it about all the letters that they're adding to the LGBTQ. <laughs> yeah. Everybody says now LGBTQIA+. Like that's the like the line that flows out. But a lot of people, I don't think, know what the I is there for or yeah. what that means. And I do think it is underrepresented, um, not talked about enough, not always included in the same way that I feel like the T of LGBT is often excluded from the queer conversation yeah. um, and intersex even more so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think sometimes also, or at least in the past, um, intersex people weren't necessarily even aware that they were intersex until later in life. And so that probably impacted their representation, their ability to participate in the community, right? And to Mm -hmm. sort of be out and engaged in this larger LGBTQIA community. Yeah, yeah. Because there are people who it's clear um, from birth Mm -hmm. that they are intersex, have an intersex condition. Um, That can be because of like anatomy that looks slightly different. Um, it can be something that's abnormally small, something that's abnormally large, something that's an odd shape, things that are supposed to be external that are internal or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, some people don't find out until they go through puberty. Right. Some people not until late adulthood. Some people they'll find out in autopsies mm-hmm. and they spent their whole life never knowing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there are a lot of um, people who are able to be a part of that community and have that community and understanding from the beginning and some people who don't, don't get that. Yeah. 
And, you know, the reality is, is that genetic testing, most of us don't have our full genome sequenced during our lifetimes or ever. Um, and so there's a lot of possibility out there that, you know, you may have some sort of um, chromosomal or other, you know, genetic um, thing happening that may classify you in some way as intersex, uh, or you may have some sort of overlap in this community and never know about it, right? Mm -hmm. Because maybe it's just not something that has um, changed the the out you know the outer markings of gender and sex on your body, um, and so just something that you might live with your whole life and not know about. Yeah, yeah, and that could be something um, that doesn't bother someone. Yeah, to not know about. Absolutely. <laughs> some Absolutely. people and some people, some intersex people really identify with the community. Yeah. Um, some people do not want to be involved or associated with the LGBTQ. They don't consider right. themselves queer or LGBTQ, um, and aren't interested in being a part of that community. Yeah. Um, but I love that there's a space carved out for it. Yeah. I love that more and more resources are becoming available to people. Yeah. And I, I do love that um, we do have access to more genetic information. I actually sent my DNA to be fully sequenced recently. That's awesome. I've had for a long time questions about myself and my body and potentially some um, intersex things. And so um, after talking to our guest, mm -hmm. um, but before interviewing for this podcast, but um, after meeting them, I went and I sent my DNA in to find out. So I'm really excited to report back on that later. That's so cool. Um, but yeah, we, we are learning more and more. We have more and more resources. And um, with that increase of knowledge and increase of visibility, naturally comes an increase of, um, of like rights and awareness. Yeah. And there are... Um, there are a lot of issues for the intersex community and a lot of hurtful and harmful things that have been uh, happening to them. Absolutely. So today we did an interview with the parent of an intersex child or young person, I guess adolescent. Um, and so um, uh, we this is a really interesting interview. Um, we definitely want to del delve a lot deeper into the experience of intersex people by interviewing intersex people themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but we also thought this was an interesting perspective that uh, maybe helps people understand and relate to this mom, this mom through her story, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I because of our um, we, it was a remote interview. Yeah. Um, and my internet in my new house was not set up yet. Uh, I am not very present in the interview, so uh, Michael and I have recorded some commentary that we're gonna drop in. Uh, if it feels a little disjointed, it's because these are happening several weeks apart. Yes. Um, but it was a lovely interview. We're excited to begin to share that with you, um, and we hope you enjoy. Yeah. So Dana is an amazing mother, um, really courageous and lovely advocate for her child, and um, really wonderful to share her experience and their family's experience with us. And so uh, we're going to go ahead and let that interview start, and then we're going to jump in with some other information as we go. Hello, everyone. We are so excited today to be joined by Dana Smith. Um, and hearing, we're going to be able to hear her family's uh, story, which is really a unique one uh, in terms of a gender experience. And so we are thrilled to have you on today, Dana. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, would you share a little bit about yourself uh, with the audience? 
Yeah. Okay. So Michael, I'm really excited um, to be here and I'm super nervous. Um, I'll tell you maybe starting why I am really nervous. <laughs> maybe that would be a good thing. Um, so I think a lot of times when we, when we hear discussions about um, gender um, or, or anything regarding that, um, I think we tend to think of a more, you know, a, a liberal person, um, maybe not necessarily a, a religious person. Um, and I'm, I'm just an old mama. Um, I'm an old mama who is religious. Um, and I'm an old mama who's tend to tend to, um, lean toward the conservative. So, um, so telling my story isn't necessarily a, a typical thing where I'm going to just kind of lay it out there. Um. <laughs> We're excited that you are willing to tell your story and share your story because we value everybody's experience around gender. And so, you know, I, we're just grateful that you're willing to share as the person you are. And so please know that you are welcomed in this space and there's no judgment from us or our listeners. We're here to listen and really learn from you. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Um, so uh, the biggest reason why I am doing this, why I'm braving this, um, is because my child um, tried to end his life. And I, I'm already going to cry. <laughs> I didn't think I would point quite so early. <laughs> um, he, this was the, the second attempt, actually, just, uh, just a, a couple months ago. Um, so, you know, we lived our, our fairly typical um, conservative life um, for 12 years. Um, and my child had said that he was a boy. Um, he's phenotypically um born with what we would call female parts. Um, and um, ever since he was, I think about three, you know, he would, he would say he's a boy and, and different things referring to himself as a boy. And of course we would just say, oh no, you're a girl and here's why. Um, you know, and, and of course it was simply based on parts really. <laughs> um, and then he would, um, Oh, I don't know. He, he would get super excited that we bought him boy short underwear once. They said boy shorts, and he was so excited. It was around kindergarten. <laughs> you bought me boy underwear? Um, <laughs> and, and oh, it just went right over my head, completely over my head. And, <clears throat> and like, well, no, they're panties. They just say boy short because we got them so that you'd be more modest, you know, because he's uh, running around the house with, undies on um those panties <laughs> so we're like oh good we'll, we'll get some longer ones um you know and then maybe fourth grade it started to kind of really come up again that that i'm a boy and i'd say well no that's just called a tomboy honey um it's a tomboy and it just means that you like to do things that typically boys might do it just means that you you know you don't like stuff that typically girls might like quite as much and it's just a tomboy but you're still a girl and here's why and guess what we focused on every single time the parts you are a girl 
because you have these parts. Um, and uh, around age, um, it, it was age uh, 11. Um, now, and and I'm, I have to interject, I guess. The, um, we're not going to use his name and, um, and my name, well, I don't know my name. I'm, I'm protecting privacy with my name as well. Um, the reason is because this is a really big deal to kind of come out like this. And it's also, um, we're going to be talking about a lot of things like parts and that should be able to be a little bit more private thing, but it's the number one thing that people think about and want to know about with gender. So, um, <clears throat> so going backward, um, when he's about 12, <laughs> um, he, uh, he just had what I could only describe as a psychotic episode. And, um, one day he came out of his room and he had, um, cut his hair to the scalp, um, and was just running around the house with this laugh that I thought, I don't know what is going on. And now I understand he was so elated to have gotten rid of the long hair that we thought helped make him a, a look like a girl. He was so euphoric. Um, we've learned those terms now about um, gender dysphoria and gender euphoria. Um, so he was really experiencing a true euphoria to have what he considered boy hair. Um, it scared me to death. <laughs> and that's when we started understanding more of his story, um, you know, as we <laughs> tried to fix him, fix him back to being a girl, um, we started to really hear what he'd been going through. Um, we didn't know, we had no idea that he had attempted or, or gotten close to suicide several times before he cut his hair. Um, it was so much for him to feel, um, like he had to present as a girl. It was just too much for him. And we had no idea. And interestingly, um, I, I had been a substitute teacher, um, for a few years and I had worked as a, a sped para for a few years and I always wore my button, my rainbow button my neurodiversity buttons, because I wanted those kids to know that I loved and accepted them and they are welcome to come and, and talk to me and, and that, um, you know, I loved them for who they were. My own child had never seen those buttons. So my own child had only heard what we hear in you know, social talk and gossip and uh, lessons on Sunday. <clears throat> so my own child had tried to end his life because I just didn't even think it was a possibility anywhere in my home with any of my children. Um, 
So we started to learn um, more and more about his experience. And of course, <laughs> at the beginning, boy, I just tried to fix him. <laughs> you are not a boy. <laughs> I just thought, well, he just went crazy. He's not a boy. <laughs> Obviously, he's not a boy. We went straight to um, LDS Family Therapy Services. We're just going to fix the heck out of him. <laughs> Make sure he knows that that he is a beautiful daughter of God. Um, and, you know, thankfully, that LDS family therapist was the first one to let us know you need to use his chosen name and pronouns. I am so grateful. I am so grateful for that. And, and this is a huge part of our story, um, really is the, the why behind why we feel like gender is so, you are a man, you are a woman, it is what you are at birth. Um, and in these years, we've learned that we can understand both of those things and there's so many nuances within it that are not just, um, you know, a morality thing or whatever. There's, there are so many differences. Um, and so here, here's some of the things that we learned. Um, I'll, I'll fast forward. So we, uh, we just heard the <clears throat> suicidal part. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll hear some more because it doesn't just get better. Um, but here are some of the things that we've learned since. Um, my child is actually very genetically diverse. Uh, it took three years because uh, most insurances won't pay for genetics tests or they'll pay for very tiny, tiny little tests. Um, we knew that he had a gene deletion that causes tumors. Um, a very, very rare, only 800 people in the world have been diagnosed um, with its carny complex. 800 people in the world. Now, when he was, I think, three or four is when they did that testing just based on foster care um, system. We adopted him. Um, and we thankfully found out that part about the tumors. Um, and so he has to get scanned several times a year. Um, we had no idea about the rest of it. Um, but even back then, they didn't know anything. They just said he has this gene deletion and, um, you know, pretty much good luck really is, is what that was. And then they called us back in when he was five or six and, and said, um, you know, well, now we know about this tiny portion of this gene deletion. Uh, he needs to be scanned in his heart every six months. He can grow heart tumors. He can have a sudden heart attack or stroke. Um, I don't know, just, just all of these things. But, but the knowledge of genetics has just boomed just in those, what, 12, 13 years, huge difference. So no wonder we didn't know about all of these other diversities. <clears throat> so, um, we just, I don't know. It, oh, okay, Michael, I don't want to say this stuff. This is the conservative mama part that is embarrassing to say, but I'm going to say it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it because I think that there's probably so many people out there who are on that same path. 
who are simply trying to fix out how how do I fix my kid back into being the spirit daughter or spirit son of God? And I'll tell you, it might not be the case. You were working with what you knew. That's it. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. We were, we were only working on the knowledge base that we had and which to be fair to anybody going through this 13 years ago, we didn't have a clue about my kids tumors right? Nobody did. The highest geneticists did not know. So you take a typical, you know, here's a typical mom that's hanging out and their boy, their, their kid says, well, I really like boy underwear. (laughs) How are we supposed to know the genetics of that? We don't. So that is why I am, (laughs) that is why I'm willing to be so open here because we just do not know. Um, now we understand that intersex people are more common than redheads. And guess what? I think that is only just the tip of the iceberg of what people know, because they just don't, we we do not go get whole genome sequencing for our children or for our adults. We don't get whole genome sequences. We we barely get any tiny little thing. We're barely understanding XY or XX, barely. So um, the other thing that I decided is um, I, I fear um, because of what I've seen on the intersex Facebook groups and, and just kind of out there, I fear that if I tell you, here is my specifics of my child, that people will only look into that and they will say, oh, well, your child does not have that. So therefore they are wrong. And I don't want people to feel that way. So I I am going to just kind of say a few different circumstances that we have found um, with a few different things. And please know that it is so much more than here are the few that we know, like the few redheads that we know. I can guarantee you in any church building that you walk into, <laughs> you have a good 2% of people who are known intersex, known. That's not all of the rest. It's not all the rest. So, um, Here's just a few things that some of them may or may not be my child. Okay. These are the, here's the conservative mama learned, (laughs) learned genetics. Um, You can get to the very, very basic XX and XY. Um, Like we tend to learn in seventh grade science. If you are XX, you're a girl. If you are XY, you're a boy. Uh, It took me until I was 47 years old to know that we all start out looking the same. Our little fetuses, (laughs) our little fetuses, you know, everything comes together. You have your sperm and your egg. And 45-year-old Dana thought, okay, that little sperm makes it a boy or makes it a girl. No, 47-year-old Dana knows. (laughs) that it takes much longer than that. And it's so much more complicated than that. Um, So we learned that, um, well, and okay, so 
oh, sorry, there's so much. There's so much in my head. It, and it's so exciting. Um, now on the internet, every once in a while, you can see, oh, the SRY gene is very important. So sometimes if the SRY gene isn't acted on, then um, the Y doesn't develop and, you know, you might get an X or that's the one thing that I've seen that, that sometimes people know. Oh, honey, there are so many other processes in here. <laughs> so many. Um, so, so here are just a, a few of these genes that can cause problems and they might be at any week in there, but, but the basics are, we all look the same. All our little fetuses look the same until at least five weeks in utero. Now, if you ask any person who has been pregnant and has had a five week old, they will probably tell you that they felt something. However, they're going to describe that. Um, I would describe it that I felt a spirit inside me that I was attached to. That is, that's my description. Um, I've heard many other descriptions, but to me, and let me just say to most other conservative minded people, if people believe that, um, I'm going to say the, the A word here, if people believe that abortion should not typically happen, except in extenuating circumstances, people have to have a reason for that. And that reason is that we believe that that spirit attaches very quickly to the fetus. So that being said, if I feel like that spirit has attached very quickly to that fetus, then here's my little child growing inside of his amazing birth mother. And that very male little spirit is attached to that tiny little five week old fetus. That, that is my feeling. And I believe that I share that with a lot of other people. Um, <clears throat> that's where we really go south with feeling like, well, you are only your gender at birth or your sex at birth, because we have nine whole months of a developing fetus and nine whole months where things can go wrong. So just like this uh, carny complex gene that causes my child to grow tumors for life, that had a major effect on this little tiny fetus and little tiny spirit. So um, what happens when you get one of the sex reversal and gonadal dysgenesis linked genes. What that means. So here's a chromosome seven gene, SEMA3A. Here's a chromosome one gene, RSP01. Here is a chromosome X gene, um, AR, gene AR. All of those genes are linked to where between, um, well, I think most of these are around week 10 or 12. So this is almost a three week old developing fetus or three months. I'm sorry, three months, three months. And again, you go back and ask any person who has been pregnant, what they feel about their baby by three months old, <laughs> three months. 
that fetus has still not decided if it is growing a penis and testicles or if it is growing uh, labia and vagina and ovaries. It is still in the deciding process at almost three months old. So a person with any one of these genes can go, whoop, okay, well, we were on the track to have an XY or even 46XX. We were on this track. However, now, um, now we are actually going to um, take what was going to be those gonads and we're going to make those into ovaries. We were going to take what was going to be the scrotal tissue and we're going to form that into the labial tissue. Um, we were going to take <clears throat> any one of those parts. And now we're deciding actually we're forming them into the other kind of parts. You don't need to be XX or XY for any of these things. You can have a 46XX person with, um, with some of these um, different genes mutated and have them have, let's say, um, you know, labia, vagina, um, ovaries with testicular uh, um, or uh, gonadal tissue in the ovaries. You can have, you can have somebody who was going to be twins and um, they might be all of, of one phenotypically female part and well, well, here we're going to just, you know, here we have, you know, somebody who looks all male, but we're going to throw in an ovary right here. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to throw in the urethral opening um, at the uh, bottom of the penis instead of the top, um, where there's all of these different changes that happen all before this three month old fetus, all before that body has decided what it's really going to look like. And you still have things that can happen even after this. So let me tell you one of the coolest, coolest things. Oh, okay. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. Whoa. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, remind me, Michael, remind me to, to tell the guevodosis. Okay. Remind me to tell the guevodosis. So I'm just going to read you down just a few other things that we have found. Um, Okay, so then we have gonadal dysgenesis 40XX, 46XX with female appearance. We have ATAD3A, we have ATAD3C, we have KATNAL2, um, all of those genes, if there is a mutation, um, is going to make that happen. Um, you have, here's one that I think is really interesting. You have the phenotype for gender identity disorder. Did you know that we now have genes that are associated with gender identity disorder? You can fully, I, I guess I need to say what a phenotype is because that was also 46-year-old me didn't know that. <laughs> um, I might have learned that in the past, but I didn't know that now. Um, so you can have um, phenotypical means kind of what you look like. It, it's the physical part. So if you're phenotypically a boy, then you're probably going to have a penis and, and testicles and scrotum. And, you know, if you're a female phenotype, 
you're going to have that. So, um, so as we're looking up all of these things in the genome browser, and you put in the phenotype of gender identity disorder, pop, here comes, and it was a huge list that it scanned for, huge. Um, I want to say there were maybe 60 genes that it scanned for when it, when it scanned for gender, gender identity disorder phenotype. So, yeah, here are just a few <laughs> that one person has, <laughs> one person has mutations on all of these for gender identity disorder. HLA-DQA1, that's homozygous, which means both genes have, you know, the same thing. HNF1A is on chromosome 12. GL12 is on chromosome 2. NFKB1, chromosome 4. ADCY1, chromosome 7. AR, chromosome X. GNAS, chromosome 20. MYC. Okay, just one person has all that. Dana gave us a really awesome list of genes that can affect gender, gender identity, yeah. um, gender ex like sexual expression. Um, and it's so crazy and awesome to me that we can just test that. We can be like, oh, beep, bop, boop, here's some numbers. That's so cool. You, you have this gene. Yeah. Um, it's really incredible that that is technology that we have access to and something that can be very helpful. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's the 21st century, right? It's amazing things at our fingertips, so much knowledge. Um, I really want to, I think I'm going to order the test as well because oh, I'm yay. super curious. I've never had my genetics sequenced in any way. And so that just sounds like such a fascinating opportunity to get to learn more about who I am at that genetic level and what I can anticipate in lots of different ways mm -hmm. and for the rest of my life. So Yeah. yeah. And there, there are so many things that can be helped tremendously through genetic testing. Yeah. I know a lot of people who have, they, they'll get genetic tests done and realize that they are predisposed to really intense like cancers or wow. diseases and they can do preventative stuff so far in advance because they know that they are genetically predisposed or sometimes like you can tell in somebody's genes that something like will happen that you can prevent. It's, it's really awesome medically how much can be helped. And it is really cool that there is this knowledge of gender that's coming out in DNA. And there are a lot of people that are very excited about that. There are a lot of people who are excited that they can prove that it's just who they are, they were born that way, that they can find it. And there are also a lot of people who are less excited about that kind of development. Yeah. Um, for a long time, I was on the less excited <laughs> okay. side of that spectrum. Why were you on the less excited side? So I, I worried that if there is there's a genetic test, if you can sequence 100% of my DNA, mm -hmm. and let's say there's 24 little gene markers that are associated with gender identity, and I only have three of them, mm. am I not trans now? Gotcha. Like, am I not trans enough? Is that now going to become like this standard that we're holding ourselves to? Mm. Like what, and I had this fear, especially as like, I, I feel like a lot of young trans people have this internal like am I really trans mm. or like am I really you know like or gay people as well like am sure. I really gay or am I you know and thinking that there's a genetic test that can prove whether or not you are mm. is very scary yeah and it's also a little nerve-wracking because what if my I have an insurance company that will cover 
uh, gender affirming care. And then they say, Ooh, actually, if you don't have these genes, we won't cover you. Right. And our knowledge of genetics is so limited at this time that I don't, it just scares me that I don't know that we have enough information to do that. Right. It's a lot of, a lot of a power in that information that makes me nervous. Mm -hmm. And it, I don't think that you should need to prove oh, yeah. in your DNA that you're, you know. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I think the, I hope that medical science from um, the eugenics sort of history and past uh, where there were scientists that were trying to say you have to have this, this, and this to be, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it is. I hope that science has learned from that negative history of eugenics that um, these genetic markers may be contributing factors, but they're probably not the only thing that makes someone intersexed or trans or anything else, right? They're things that contribute to who we are, and there are probably other things that do that as well. And so that's my hope is that we've evolved enough as a society and science has evolved enough and medicine has evolved enough to say these are things that could be contributing to someone's identity or someone's body and you know in these ways and th that person being an intersex person or a trans person or gay person or whatever it is um but there are also lots of other factors that could be doing that too and so yeah i hope it doesn't mm -hmm. become a you know like you said if you don't have these three genetic markers then we're not going to cover this on insurance and that because that just we know that's bad science and we know that yeah. genetics and humans are way more complicated than that so yeah I, yeah, I think I get nervous about how the information will be used, mm -hmm. but I love the information. Yeah. I think it is so fascinating. So it's cool. so cool. I'm so excited to get my like sequencing back and look th through it with a doctor. I think it's so cool that we know that stuff. And yeah. like if there are genetic things that are linked to like being trans, mm -hmm. which is not something that we have known about right. in like a way that's public that we can discuss that we have like physical evidence for. I think that's such a cool part of the conversation and like, yeah, yeah let's talk about that. Like, where does this even come from? Like a lot of people don't want to think about where it came from. They just want the right to be who they are without having to, you right. know, justify where it came from. Sure. But like, if we can find out where kinda it came neat. from, like, I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I, I feel like uh, we're both like kind of uh, excited about the science and the yeah. potential around that, because um, that's just neat. That's just fun answers that you know you may be may help me understand myself better. Mm -hmm. Right? May help all of us understand ourselves a little bit better. I think one concern I would have would be around privacy, mm -hmm. just because. You know, that is a huge concern in today's world yep. and people having a lot of information about you and adding my genetics to that could be really scary, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to discrimination, right? Like it's not, it is not illegal in this country to discriminate against LGBTQ people in a lot of ways, right? And so if there are genetic markers, right, that contribute to being an LGBT per person, I'd be afraid that maybe through a lack of privacy that could that contribute to all sorts of things right? yeah um, yeah so like what if what if one one of those markers right um makes me a deviant in some way and now because it's known that i have that genetic trait i'm unfit to be a parent right or, God, you know terrifying oh <laughs> like, now we're getting <laughs> to like brave new world scary world things of like you can only be these things yeah yeah and there i mean and there is a lot of scary stuff happening yeah. in the world to queer people to neurodivergent people yeah. a lot of 
it's just scary to be different sometimes in the medical right. and legal world. And having all of this genetic information is thrilling and also a little bit scary. Yeah. So we just kind of wanted to take a pause there and talk about that because yes, it is so exciting and we love talking about it and we're right. so curious about it, right. but also it is a more complex conversation than just look at these cool genes that we found. Now we know everything about gender, right. um, which I don't think Dan's claiming that we no, know any, everything no. or anything, but you know, like it, it is a more nuanced conversation yeah. um, than just like the factual details of what the DNA is telling us. Yeah. Well, I mean, look at what's happening in legislatures across the country right now, right? We're making laws about access to medical care for both different states are trying to do this for both transgender uh, young people and adults in some cases. So, you know, sometimes uh, knowledge is not used for good. And we know mm -hmm. this again from eugenics, right? Mm -hmm. We saw this happening through the eugenics movement where science and medicine were trying to create better humans, and that's in air quotes, um, but then ended up doing some pretty horrific things that actually, including the forced sterilization of people, right, the, um, all the way to, you know, the atrocities of the Nazis and all of this, right, Those that's all wrapped up in genetic, gen eugenics, mm -hmm. <laughs> not genetics, eugenics. Um, and so we know that sometimes things that start from a place of knowledge and hoping to do good can be twisted by society and have really negative outcomes and so i would hope that this isn't something that uh, lawmakers ever feel the need to start making laws based on people's genetics and what we are what we know about them at this point which we will probably know a whole, whole lot more or different things in 20 50 100 years mm -hmm. yeah. yeah great so let's get back to dana When people say, have you ever heard people say, um, there's no gay gene? I have. I have. I have definitely heard there's no gay gene. Guess what? <laughs> we are learning so much about genetics out of all of those things. Uh, my personal opinion is you have all of these gender identity disorder genes you still might be phenotypically 100% male or 100% female. Um, but if you have gender identity disorder genes, yeah, you might be attracted to maybe the same sex because the rest of your body is saying, yep, I, I did grow a penis and testicles. Yes. However, I feel a little bit more female. Okay. Go back to the religious standpoint for people who do think gender is essential and gender is eternal, is that person's spirit male or is that person's spirit female? And we have zero way of knowing that, none. Because now we know more science. So um, you, have, you have genes now for um, ovotesticular mutations where where you have um, your ovaries have ovarian tissue and testicular tissue. You have all of these different things. Now, let me tell you about the guevodosis, okay? It is so exciting. This is the first thing that to me um, and, and my extended family, 
when we would try to explain our child's feelings on gender to the extended family, that was, it was huge and so hard. And it was like, well, no, she's going to be my little baby girl forever, no matter what she feels. And they thought that they were being so helpful, you know, like, oh no, we love our little baby girl. <laughs> they really thought they were being helpful. Just like I thought I was being helpful by fixing my child sure she knew that she was this beautiful daughter of God because we didn't know science. <laughs> let me, let me <clears throat> pause to, to go back to something that I just think of occasionally. Now as my 47 year old self, I feel like often um, people will think that I am against or fighting against my faith tradition because of science. And we joke that it's, you know, in Nacho Libre and it's like, why do you hate me? Because I believe in science. <laughs> um, but, but also often, sometimes I feel like I'm going, the earth is round, the earth is round look, we have all this science now that says the earth is round and, and people are going, no, it's flat, you know, heresy. How dare you say the earth is round? Because we all know that the earth is flat. Well, we did until we knew the earth was round. We did. We did know that. And then science and scientists discovered, no, that the earth really is round. Right. And I feel like I, I don't feel like I need to be at odds with my faith tradition just by saying, look at all of this amazing science that is coming up. How cool. You know, no, I don't believe that God creates um, children with heart tumors. How how could I say that? How how could I, you know? And I'm going, well, my child has a heart tumor caused by genetics. And every single person that has this genetic mutation also grows tumors. No, no, he would never do that to somebody's child. Children are born perfect. Right? And so I don't, I don't feel like I need to be at odds with anything. But I do feel like we have a lot to learn, all of us, with science. Um, you know, in, in 1970, whatever it was when thankfully I was just a child, um, thankfully my faith tradition learned that, um, they weren't, they didn't have to be racist <laughs> and that was a new discovery <laughs> to that faith tradition. It was a new discovery. And there were a lot of people who went, no, that's not, that's not okay. But it was new. And I just, so I feel like, well, you know what? I'm going to be studying all of these genes and maybe someday they can say, oh, okay. I do see <laughs> there are some differences here. God creates fetuses that grow heart tumors <laughs> And sometimes God takes that little male spirit and he puts it into a phenotypically <laughs> into a phenotypically um, female body. Sometimes that happens because that is how fetuses that are developing work.
let's talk for a minute about um, the history of intersex people um, and medical practices that have been common in the past and that are common now. Great, let's do it. Um, A big big medical intervention, um, that's a big topic right now with intersex rights advocates Mm -hmm. is um, intersex genital mutilations um, or like genital reconstruction, which often happens on infants. Right. Um, in fact, this used to be, this actually was the common practice, an accepted common medical practice um, for a very long time um, from the sort of mid 20th century when these sorts of surgeries and things were really possible um, until really the beginning of the 21st century. It would, you know, I, I think it was in the early 2000s that doctors and medical associations finally started coming out saying, whoa, okay, let's maybe not make the standard practice that if an infant's uh, exterior genitals, uh, someone who is assigned male at birth, right, their exterior genitals do not measure to a specific um, length, that then they turn that child into a girl presenting or female Mm -hmm. presenting external genitalia. Um, So complicated thing because a lot of times, at least in the past, uh, these decisions were being made for children, sometimes even without their parents' knowledge because Mm -hmm. it was just the common medical practice, right? And so it would just happen, Um, but certainly without that child's consent or knowledge. And so that led to a lot of gender dysphoria for people, right? And a lot of feelings of being out of place for intersex people who often had these types of surgeries, right? And then grew up feeling like they should be developing in a different way, right? Or mm-hmm. that, you know, there are some really wonderful um, books and novels and biographies out there about intersex people that grew up in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, right? And kind of had this journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds, I mean, we call it intersex genital mutilation, which sounds like this horrible, evil, terrible mutilating thing. Um, but there, w- there was rationale for the intervention um, that was believed at the time, like for why it was believed to be okay. Um, And some of those ideas were improving chances of fertility, Mm -hmm. um, allowing for menstruation, preventing uh, potential future UTIs, preventing obstruction, um, reducing gonad cancer risk, Mm -hmm. um, closing exposed organs. Sometimes things just aren't closed up the right way. And so they need to do that for like sanitation and safety, um, improving continence Mm -hmm. and alleviating parental distress over atypical genital appearance, which is, you know, um, and making appearance more normal for sex of rearing, Mm -hmm. um, reducing the effects of atypical genitalia on the psychosexual development and gender identity and improving potential for adult sexual relationships. Yeah. So there's kind of this range from being like protecting you from immediate infection and disease and medical danger to making your parents more comfortable, making your sexual partners more comfortable, making potentially the patient more comfortable. Let's just solve this now and make you look typical. Right. And then pretend like this isn't going to come back later. (laughs) Come back to haunt us later. Yeah. Well, and I think there are two distinct categories in that list, right? There's one that's very much medical for medical reason Mm -hmm. intervention, Mm -hmm. right? So those are things to like allow menstruation to happen, like to allow the the, uh, biology that you have to function, right? To closing up different organs and things if they are not closed, right? And those sorts of things are um, medical interventions that seem to have a very clear 
medical reason, yes, right? And yes. then we've got, um, and that's like just your body functioning kind of a mm-hmm. reason. And then we've got this set of, uh, later in that list, more social yeah. reasons, right? Of like making parents comfortable, right? Making other people comfortable, right? Hoping that your uh, adult relationships in the future, sexual relationships will be normal. Again, air quotes there. Um, because a lot of these, this set of rules and norms around performing these kinds of operations on children and infants uh, around these social expectations, those were very much created around a gender binary, right, of Mm -hmm. male and female, and very much in a time when heterosexuality was um, the uh, only accepted norm in lots of ways, right, where homosexuality, in fact, was still considered often deviant or um, a mental illness even, right? Like, there was, that didn't end until the 70s, and so some of this is, uh, those social reasons are leftovers from that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I I am really excited to talk to more intersex people um, on the podcast. Yeah, but I've heard a lot of stories of how traumatic it is as an adult to learn mm-hmm. that those medical decisions are made for you as a child, okay. um, and to have a whole lifetime of for some people gender dysphoria because yeah. of this gender that was assigned to them like post-birth right um having like an explanation and realizing that it was done without their consent mm-hmm. and that that's still happening to other people it's very distressing it's very um concerning and there is a huge movement right now to have those types of stories be heard and those people be seen and their rights be granted and um, that we can provide uh, some better care for intersex people. Which right now, um, there are surgical treatments, Mm -hmm. hormone treatments, Mm -hmm. um, genetic selections and terminations, Mm -hmm. uh, gender dysphoria treatment, and um, psychosocial support. So now um, the current, like how we said with the original um, surgical intervention reasoning, like s- medically for life-saving reasons and right. safety and comfort, like there needs to be surgery. And then um, electively as well as like consenting adults, right. there can be reconstructive surgery, same for trans people too, yeah. you know, but that can be done now with psychological yes. treatment and healthy consenting decision-making the right. way that like, all medical decisions to me should be made. Yes. Um, so it's really awesome that that is the world that we're more moving toward. Yeah, it's. I think it's really important that uh, medical science, that physicians um, and people in the healthcare field have taken a step back to say, hey, let's learn from these experiences of intersex people who were... Uh, physically operated on and changed in a way that actually did not have the intended outcome, right? And caused this person a lot of distress throughout their life. Mm -hmm. And so let's maybe, you know, if there is something life-threatening happening, if there's something that has to have a surgical intervention um, to keep this baby alive, then let's do it because that's, you know, a reasonable thing to do. Yes, yeah. But if it's around fears around their future or anxiety around their future or 
thinking, you know, that at some point this, this child will not feel normal. Let's actually let the child develop and let's work with them and their family throughout their childhood and adolescence and make sure that they are, you know, sort of adapting, getting the support they need, see what actually happens because, you know, there's there was a lot of surgery that happened at a mm-hmm. certain point in time instead of allowing intersex children to actually develop as they would develop. And so, you know, really taking a different approach instead of surgery first, it's a support, um, making, you know, the healthiest choices possible and surrounding families and intersex people with the kind of medical and social support that the, that they need. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there's, if there's an issue with, um, someone being socially accepted mm-hmm. because of an intersex condition. The issue is not the intersex condition. The issue is the society that would cause the issue. Sure, yeah. So, expectations yeah. around gender. Right? Yeah. yeah. So a lot of those fears of for their future um, are based in this binary, yeah. cisgender, heterosexual mm-hmm. focused worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and that doesn't have to be the case. You can be anything and look like anything and be happy and thrive and have love and success. And right. um, it's awesome that those, that being able to make those decisions as a family and as an individual um, is more available. And a lot of that is thanks to intersex advocates yeah, who absolutely. have been putting themselves out there in a world that is not always receptive to people who are different, right. um, calling for change, calling for um, the medical world, the psychological world, mm-hmm. um, society to make a safer and a better place for intersex people. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful and very, and I very much respect um, all of those advocates and everything that they do. Um, and I hope that as we're just like, oh, here's this information that we found that we're not forgetting all of the people that made that information public Absolutely. and allowed, it's not just like, oh wow, society is changing so much. Um, intersex people have better options now. Like, no, intersex people yeah. changed society. Absolutely, yeah, yeah that for through advocacy, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. through education and mm-hmm. awareness. I mean, that's one of the things I really love about Dana's story and being willing to tell us the story mm-hmm. and share the story about her family and child. Um, is it gives us a, an ability to understand that there are more complex gender and sex experiences to humankind mm-hmm. than are often told, right? And so that's really important for us to understand there's lots of people there, you know, there's certainly lots of people that fit within cisgender male, cisgender female, but there are people like us that fit in the trans category. And then there are whole other categories of people that fit into these other gender and sex experiences um, that are really important for us to understand so that we know that there's a lot of variation in human experience, right? And we, we should know that in every way, right? We've got human beings of all different kinds of experience, all over the world and that can be just just that's just part of the fabric of being a human being right is that we are more complicated than we often understand from first look right mm-hmm. yeah. okay now i've teased you a lot about the guevodoses now we're going to talk about the Guevodoses. 
this was my first giant um, leap with my family where they went, oh, that's really interesting. Okay, so there is a, uh, a whole island in the Dominican Republic where one out of nine girls turned physically into a boy by the time they're around age 12. They're called Guevodoses. That's like their nickname. Guevodoses means penis at 12. <laughs> this whole island. So what happens is they have a, oh, I don't remember, five amylase something. I don't remember what it is, but, but they have a gene, one of those genes that I was talking about with fetal development that, um, that it doesn't uh, absorb the, the needed things that it needs. Let's just say, um, you know, at, at that like five to 12 week kind of time, it, it doesn't allow the testosterone to do the work that it needs to grow the, the penis and the testes and, and everything at that time during fetal development. So it goes, oh, I guess our body is going to be a girl. <clears throat> they grow full girl bodies. Okay. You have full, you have the ovaries, you have the vagina, you have everything. Then when puberty hits, their bodies get that second wave of testosterone that, that most males typically get. Their ovaries turn into gonads and they drop and their labias start to grow that scrotal tissue and fuse. They, their, their clitoris starts to grow to become the penis. This to me was amazing. And on a whole island where one out of nine people experienced this, why hadn't I heard about that? Why, <laughs> why did it take me 47 years to understand that there are humans who go through that? And there are a major amount of humans who go through that. And nobody can tell me that, um, well, they were born a girl, they were born a vagina, so they are definitely eternally a girl. You cannot tell me that. Now, here is something really, really cool. So the, I, I thought that I knew that. I thought that they were only in the DR that whole time. Just yesterday on the intersex group, just yesterday, here comes this woman posting, does anybody else in the Salt Lake City area have kids with this condition? She has two children. She has two children with this condition right in my area. How do we not know this? So Dana mentioned a very specific intersex condition um, that is common in a few areas uh, in the Dominican Republic, in Papua New Guinea, and in Turkey. Um, and this condition, uh, she referred to it as guevadoches, which is um, 
translates to testes at 12 um, and is the term that's used frequently in the in the Dominican Republic it, in the Dominican Republic um, but I think the scientific term for this or it's related to 5 alpha reductase 2 deficiency um, and so this is just a, it's a genetic mutation um, it's an autosomal recessive condition um, and it's a mutation in the SRD5A2 gene um, so this is a, a very specific intersex condition, um, which we can look up lots of different conditions, uh, intersex conditions, and do a deep dive, and hopefully we will mm -hmm. with, uh, probably with a geneticist, <laughs> because they're gonna know a lot more than we do. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this is a really common condition, and this is actually, uh, I think, probably the first intersex condition that um, I ever learned about in my undergraduate studies, um, and just thought was really fascinating, because, um, these communities, especially in the Dominican Republic, um, and in the well, really in all of them, because it's a common um, it's a common occurrence there. These societies have created a third gendered experience or a different kind of gender socialization to account for the high frequency of this intersex condition within their society, which I always thought was cool. Right, it's something that. Um, I guess wasn't seen as a problem that needed to be fixed, but was something that was like, oh, these people are a part of our society, so let's ensure that our understanding of gender and sex is nuanced enough to create a system that allows them to thrive and exist. the big thing here is why I am on gender curious <laughs> because I am indeed curious we don't go around talking about you know I have a penis and I have a, a you know clitoris and we don't say that and especially we don't say that about our children because we are so busy trying to fit the mold into which we feel like our child needs to be so that other people can see this is what my child is. We're so busy doing that. And we would never, ever talk about our children's genitals. I mean, I certainly don't want to. But guess what the first thing that happens when I say something or when my child says something about being trans? Oh, they want to know. <laughs> they want to know, what do your genitals look like? When you say you're intersex, they want to know, what do your genitals look like? But because... We're trying to protect the privacy of our children and ourselves. I, I shouldn't just say children because there are so many people at so many different ages experiencing this. We don't, we don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to say that and we shouldn't need to, but how do you say, but really I'm a, I'm a boy spirit and have people just go, Oh, okay. All right. Hey dude, you know, you, it doesn't happen. So that's, that is why I'm here and I'm learning so many other things, but that was just amazing to me to know that, um, you know, 20 minute drive, here we are, we have a, we have two guavidoses right here. And even that, I have to tell you, even that we talked about, I, I'm not going to give super specifics in case, um, you know, I, I know nobody knows who she is, but, um, but even then, I had this idea of the Guevodoses that because of the island, because of what I've seen happens on the island, I 
I knew here's exactly what they do. And then they know that they're boys and then they are raised as boys. Her girls, she says, wants to be girls and her oldest is 15 and they're on estrogen patches so that they won't continue to um, develop maleness. So even that was an experience for me to go, oh, well, what I thought <laughs> always happened with gender actually isn't happening with gender with these people. It is so, there's just no way to say how many different things are going on with our bodies. There's no way to say, do you have a boy or a girl spirit? Or, you know, like I've learned, um, you know, from, from Landon, like I've learned from Landon, there's often a duality, you know, with where you don't need to necessarily choose, right? That was my frame of mind to think we needed to find out which one of the two it was. Humans aren't the only creatures that have more sex variation than a male-female binary. Yeah. Um, and when we talk about intersex, um, I think a, a lot of the thought is that it's, oh, it's genetic mutation. There's something like broken about these people, mm. but like, but that's okay. Mm. You know, like, mm. oh, it, it's mutated, it's different, it's abnormal, it's weird, but like, I guess that's fine, but like, there's just so much biological diversity in nature. Like right. if you look around to other species, there is so much room beyond a male-female binary. That's not just like, oh, a mutation that's weird, but it's something that is normal and celebrated and natural as a part of like biology. Right. Um, and humans, we have uh, created a male-female binary in our society that makes anything else seem um, odd or out there or like just this unnatural occurrence um, but it is very natural and I would love to stop and talk about a few um, other times in nature that we see yeah. a variety of sexes beyond just a male female binary and how that is natural and normal and awesome absolutely can we also so you know the word mutation I think in our world today mm -hmm. carries a negative connotation like you're talking about but mutation is how genetics grow and evolve. Mm -hmm. That's how species actually evolves over time, right? So humans really wouldn't exist at all without mutation from the very beginning, right? So that's how animal species, every kind of species, every kind of life on the planet, that's how it grows and changes over time is through mutation. So mm -hmm. it's actually a very positive scientific process, right? And a positive genetic process. Yeah. yeah. And everything that makes you and I different, everything yeah. that makes us look different, the thing that gives everybody different skills and strengths and yep. makes us such a diverse and thriving society. Yep. It's all genetic, like it's all genetic, mutation. <laughs> genetic yeah. mutations. Yeah. It's just that these ones that specifically have to do with biological sex now suddenly are right. not acceptable socially. Right. Um, which I really don't think needs to be the case. It seems silly to me. Fair. So you want to tell us about some other species that have some fun mutations around uh, genetics and gender and sex? I would love to. All right. So um, I love bees. Oh, I love bees a lot. Bees are cool. Um, Make our food possible. They do. Mm -hmm. And bees have um, more 
than just reproductive male and reproductive female. So right. they have drones, which are the reproductive males, mm -hmm. the queen, who's a reproductive female, and the workers, which are sterile females. Fascinating. So they're like they're still male female, but they're three different like sexual reproductive capacities and roles and responsibilities that are played by these three different like genders essentially of bees. Yeah, it's very cool. That's so cool. And then there are a lot of um, of creatures that have more than one mm. biological sex or can transition. Mm -hmm. So there's sequential hermaphrodites, which start as one sex and transition to another. Wow. So one that is very well known for that is clownfish. Really? Um, <laughs> yeah, clownfish will change from male to female. If there's not a female in the area, like there's no breeding female, they can change their sex, like flip a switch, wow. and one or more will become female to allow there to be a reproducing reprodu female. That is fascinating. And there's a lot of reef fish that can do the opposite, actually, where oh. if there's no reproducing male, uh -huh. the largest, strongest female will develop male reproductive capacity and become the male wow. of the group. Wow. Yeah, it's super cool. That is fascinating. And then there are some simultaneous hermaphrodites, or like true hermaphrodites, mm -hmm. which have male and female reproductive mm -hmm. anatomy in adulthood. Mm -hmm. So there's like earthworms um, have male and female reproductive anatomy. Some right. fish have it. Um, banana slugs do. And those ones are cool in particular because they can reproduce with themselves if there's oh no <laughs> mating partner available. No yeah, Whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> and and they're funny because they they will sometimes lose their male reproductive anatomy. Wow. Uh, because it's external and things oh. happen. Oh no. But if they maintain their female reproductive anatomy, they can still reproduce. Wow. And have babies and live full thriving slug lives because they've just got both options. That is fascinating. Yeah, it's very cool. Wow. There's um, one that I learned about that's super fascinating, which is um, these, they call it the, the bird with four sexes, Whoa. which is a type of sparrow. They're white-throated sparrows, and they have four distinct sexes with wow. different reproductive capabilities. So they have... So they're white-throated sparrows, but they can have tan heads or white heads. Okay. The tan heads are very dull, and they're very mellow and calm and chill. Okay. And they are great parents. They're very good at raising young. Aww. The ones with white heads are very flamboyant, very loud, very aggressive. Okay. Um, they're very promiscuous. They <laughs> like to get around, and they're terrible parents. Like, they will just abandon their young. <laughs> they're terrible. <laughs> so there's tan-headed males and females. There's white-headed males and females. Wow. They're all the same species, but the white heads will only mate with the tan heads because somebody needs to raise the young. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. And so they have these four different, like two different types of male and two different types of female that can only reproduce with the like opposite head color. Wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. That's and it's cool. from, there's like a gene inversion of a, a thousand genes on chromosome two. Whoa. And the genes control both the head color and like the aggression and the personality. Wow. And normally this type of inversion is only seen in sex chromosomes, mm -hmm. um, X and Y. And so 
the birds with this mutation have essentially doubled their sex chromosomes from two to four. Wow. So they have like all of these traits that are not explicitly sexually linked that have become sexually linked and therefore they have developed this like structure of having four biological sexes that reproduce in a way that appears like for a long time biologists would see them and they just thought oh all of the females have tan heads and the males have white right and that's just what the species looks like and then they started realizing like oh that's not always the case wow um that is yeah super interesting that is so cool yeah so wow so sex our definition of sex after looking at all of these different ways that nature is beautiful and finds a way to thrive and create life mm-hmm. see it seems so limited like male is male female is female and that's all and any variance is abnormal right like i don't know sex is so much bigger and so much cooler than that <laughs> it is it is it's there's so much behind all of this and you know i think this comes down to most of us aren't doctors or geneticists right most of us don't have a deep understanding or biologists who don't have a deep understanding of humans as animals as a species Mm -hmm. right and so um you know that's society we come up with generalizations about humans so that we can understand them as lay people right as just everyday people as from childhood onward um but this is why i hope at some point we get to um, interview Dr. Ann Fausto Sterling because she wrote some really incredible books about human beings and sex and gender and how there's so much happening, right? And there's so much that goes on to create different kinds of gender and sex in human beings as species, as animals. Um, and I think we'll have a really fun conversation with her and I know we'll both learn a lot. And so I, I love this stuff because I love science and biology but um i think it's really fascinating right to be able mm-hmm. to think more about um and i personally don't find it scary to think that it we ha- that sex that gender that everything about different species are is more complicated than one thing or the other right that there's a lot happening like that kind of multifaceted variation seems from a basic biology perspective healthy for a species right and like a good thing and so i don't know i'm excited to learn a lot more about this as we do this podcast yeah i am too i am too i feel like it, this is like being a kid and your teacher tells you that a number plus a number is another number and yep. then you go back to school the next year and they're like oh guess what there's letters in there too yeah, now and then, numbers, <laughs> yeah like, and then they're like and imagine yeah yeah so there's I feel like we have some awesome simplified ways that we understand humans yep. that yep. are great and have their merits and have been very helpful. Totally. But there are more levels of understanding that yes. are deeper and more inclusive of more experiences in yeah. a way that's more enriching to learn about yes. and makes the world a more enriching place to live in when you're seen and understood. So yeah. I am so, so excited to keep learning and to keep sharing that yes. learning journey with you, our listeners. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. And you just encapsulated that feeling. I couldn't name it before you talked about sort of school and like different levels. And, you know, as you progress in schooling, I remember each year I would get so excited and be like, I'm going to learn so much more about science this year because I'm a geek or I'm going to learn so much more about this, you know, like whatever it was. It's like, yes, this year I get to learn Latin, like whatever, you know, but mm-hmm. it just helped me understand 
the world a little bit better. And it doesn't mean that what I was taught before is completely false. It just means that's what my brain was able to understand and digest at that time. And now I'm able to understand more complexity, more nuance, um, more about the subject. And so I think we're going to have that experience with our listeners around this. I agree. Just a few weeks ago, um, we met someone with a condition um, very like my child's. Well, we met the parents because the child ended his life. And he ended his life because he felt very male. He was, um, he felt very male. He was genetically um, what we would call genetically male. Um, He was fully phenotypically female. Um, and when they did a biopsy of the ovaries, they found the gonadal tissue that very much looked like the ovaries. And he wanted to present as female because that is what society expected. And he ended his life. So (laughs) I think that's about the end of my big story. Um, But I just, you know, I just really want people to understand how much difference there is, how much scientific information we don't know, how important privacy is to people, uh, how hard it is to find out anything about your own genetics, (laughs) and how hard it is to find information even when you, you know, well, here's these mutations even how hard it is to find that, um, the years to get into genetics, the lack of insurance coverage, all of that. And it's ending in deaths of people because they feel like they have to fit in with society with one or the other, and it's not okay. And we need to just get better at just being okay with knowing that we don't no. Yes. Oh, Dana, that is, your story is so powerful. Your family's story is so powerful. I appreciate you so much being willing to share and, and, mo- and share that message, the genetics, the gender, that all of these things that are part of the human experience are so much more complicated than perhaps the assumptions that we bring to it and that we are learning we are as human beings we're always learning and we've got a lot of learning to do about gender as a species and as a people and i just appreciate how you bring that story and that genuine love for your child and for other intersex children and for all children to be able to be who they are and for us to honor that and to love them for who they are you're journey is so powerful and your story is so powerful just thank you so much and i'm just so grateful that that your child that your son has you and has your family and i'm grateful that i get to learn from you thank you um i'm grateful that we have him we we would have yeah I hate to say it we would have never looked into any of this had we not had him so I, well, of course, you know, he, he, has yeah. a, he has a big, <laughs> he has a big mission on earth. Yeah. Well, he's, 
He does. He has a important life to live. And I, I believe like you do, that God created all of us to, to be the people we are for purpose. And I think your son has a really important purpose to teach us all that we have a lot more to learn and a lot more love to give one another. So I'm just grateful that he is in this world. And I'm grateful for you. We're really glad that we um, have been able to talk to Dana and stay updated on their family's story. Um, It's really incredible um, what they've been able to accomplish and share. And it is something that's very difficult and vulnerable to share. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a lot of information about her family and her child and for a lot of other intersex people that are out there sharing their stories. That's a lot of really deeply personal information. So let's talk about why. Why is it important for Dana to speak out and why are we so excited to help her? That's such a great question. I think the the first answer is that as human beings, we respond to stories, right? We just, that's how we learn about things the best, right? That's how we retain information, especially information about new ideas, new kinds of people, new ways of being. And so I think this kind of storytelling is so important because I, I don't even know what the percentage is of Americans that know an intersex person is, but for trans people, it's 33%. It's got to be lower for intersex people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being able to say, oh, I listened to you know this mother's story about her family and her child who's intersex, wow, that opened up a whole new thing for me, a whole new world way of thinking about people and gender and sex, and I need to learn a lot more. Mm-hmm. I love thinking in analogies and stories. It just mm-hmm. helps me understand the mm-hmm. world better. And there is such a difference between reading about what something is on in a textbook and hearing somebody's story oh, yeah. and their personal experience. Um, so it is so powerful to have Dana specific story and to hear it instead of just this foreign concept of this idea of oh there are intersex people to oh this is somebody's life that they've lived and here's how they feel about it and here's how they think and here's how it's affected them Um, it makes it so much more exciting and engaging to learn about and also there are some things that people just don't think they need to learn about until they hear a story and then they're like oh wow that is important and I care about that yeah or things that people wouldn't even think exist until Mm -hmm. they hear a story right I mean that's like one of the most powerful things about storytelling is it opens up things that we don't even know are happening in the world for us to learn about to empathize with um, and to just increase our understanding of what it means to be a human being Mm -hmm. yeah yeah there, um, there's a lot of work to be done um, in the medical community and the intersex community um, as far as getting good and fair treatment for yeah. intersex adults and children. Yeah. Um, I learned a lot about the Intersex Society of North America and their like treatment recommendations. Very cool. Um, so I think it's pretty awesome that they have recommendations for treatment that include like um, children and adults with intersex should be treated in an open, shame-free, supportive, and honest way. They should be provided with access to trained psychologists. Um, they should... Oh, they have, like, 
a recommendation that following diagnostic workup, newborns with intersex should be given a gender assignment as boy or girl, depending on which of those genders the child is more likely to feel. Note that gender assignment does not involve surgery and then like a forward treatment plan from there. So it's, um, there are a lot of really awesome people doing a lot of really awesome work to provide good quality, sustainable treatment. Yeah. Um, and that movement is possible thanks to the work of medical professionals and thanks to the work of advocates like Dana doing what she does. Exactly, exactly. And our community, the LGBTQIA community, has a long history of this uh, from uh, the, days, the days of the HIV and AIDS epidemic, um, the, uh, a subgroup of ACT UP called, uh, called TAG, I believe. Um, yeah, the Treatment Action Group, I believe. Um, they actually took it upon themselves to learn the science so that they could start creating like medical trials for drugs to treat HIV and AIDS because we didn't have anything to treat it, right? So um, they had doctors and all sorts of people involved in that group and then people that went back to school to learn the science so that they could be a part of creating, you know, sort of the protocols and the uh, processes that people living with HIV and AIDS should go through and have access to. Um, I think we've also seen this with trans folks, right? We are often teaching um, our practitioners, our, our doctors, at least in my generation, we were often teaching doctors how to treat, uh, medically treat for transitioning um, trans people, right? And so sometimes, often, I know the medical protocols better than my doctors do and have certainly in the past. And so um, this is a, it's cool to see this advocacy group really taking that expertise into their, into their own hands, right? And saying, hey, here are the right protocols and practices that will ensure um, safety, health, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a positive process overall for intersex people. Thank you so much for tuning in to our intersex episode. We've really loved learning about this. We've really loved sharing it with you. Um, and we would love to encourage you to continue to be curious, to continue to learn um, about the intersex community. The, the chances are you know somebody, you will know somebody, you've got a coworker, you might have a grandchild one day. Mm -hmm. um, there's intersex people all around you and the world is just such a better place as we learn to love and understand each other deeper. Yeah. And to all of our listeners who do feel different, who maybe are intersex or have something else that makes them feel outside of the binary, outside of the normal, you are perfect the way you are. Your body is beautiful the way it is. And we are so happy that you are here sharing this life with us and being curious with us. Absolutely. And thank you for teaching us through your advocacy um, about who you are as individuals and as an intersex community. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gender Curious. You can find us weekly on every major podcast provider on Facebook at Gender Curious Podcast and Instagram at Gender Curious Pod. Please like, follow, share, and it would mean so much to us if you could leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you have any questions or just want to reach out, you can email us at hi at gendercuriouspod.com, and we would love, love, love to hear from any intersex individuals or families this week um, so we can share some of those stories or even just so we can read them ourselves privately and learn. <laughs> um, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, stay, stay curious. curious. Gender Curious is recorded at Full Swing Studios and is a member of the One Community Podcast Network.